Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Because it's not just about John Cash going to a prison. It's not just about me going to a prison trying to bring good news. Rather, it's finding God and grace uh, in these unlikely places and unlike these people. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. And believe it or not, we are actually in the month of December already. So we are almost to the end of 2020. Uh, I know I'm <laughs> I'm excited for the end of 2020. 2021 has got to be better, right? I know a lot of you are probably feeling that way as well. It's been a weird, weird year. But anyway, before we finish off the year, I've got a couple episodes that I'm really excited to release, including this one that I actually recorded a while back, and um, I'm excited to finally release it. Uh, it's with Dr. Richard Beck, uh, who we've had on before. For those of you who have listened to us from the beginning, or maybe uh, you're hardcore and you went back to the beginning and listened uh, in chronological order, but we did an episode a while back, probably about three years ago, with him. Uh, the book was called Reviving Old Scratch, and it was a book about the devil, and uh, always a fun topic. So he always he always picks interesting uh, interesting topics. So this one is based on his new book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. And it's this really interesting look at Johnny Cash's life and some of the causes he was involved in that I certainly wasn't aware of, um, like the plight of the Native American and prison reform and, and issues that were really important to him at the time that he used a lot of his, uh, you know, his uh, celebrity to help uh, bring to light and to help, um, you know, make, make changes. So really, really cool. So very excited, uh, to release this one for you guys to hear it. Uh, the musical guest this week, you know, uh, if we could afford to get the rights to Johnny Cash, we totally would have used that. But, uh, as you can imagine, a little expensive, but, uh, we do have a super cool guest this week. The band is called tall heights. Uh, please go support their work. Uh, great band, great artists. Um, so, you know, as always, the Spotify playlist that we maintain will be updated. We update it every time we have a new episode with a, a song by that featured artist. Um, and as always, um, you know, if you want to support us in some way, if you can, uh, at this point in time, uh, we do have a Patreon. Uh, so if you want to become part of our Patreon family, you can find links to that as well as links to our social media, our blog, and our entire back catalog of episodes at www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, so you can find all that good stuff there. Or if you're looking for Christmas present ideas, we have t-shirts, we have pint glasses, we have coffee mugs. Um, all of your favorite liquids taste much, much better with our logo on the front. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Probably not. But anyway, we do have some stuff there. Uh, we do have some new blog posts coming. I just posted one a few weeks ago uh, that's fairly fresh. Um, but again, you can find all of our relevant links through there. Um, one of the easiest ways too, that you can support us right now is just by telling a friend about us. So if you know somebody who might benefit from, uh, this podcast and the work that we're doing, 
uh, tell a friend. Uh, the other easy way to do it is to give us a five-star review on iTunes. That just helps us get more exposure, uh, gets us out to more people, and uh, you know we're just trying to get the good word out. So, Other than that, um, as always, thank you so much for listening. I uh, appreciate all of you out there who continue to listen. Um, we'll have one more episode in 2020 that'll be out the week of Christmas. So you'll have something to listen to if you happen to be traveling or if you just need to escape from your in-laws for a second. You can tell them you're studying. So there you go. Uh, After that, we'll be hard at work recording new episodes in the month of January. So we'll be off the month of January. But I promise you we will be back with fresh episodes in February to kick off 2021. And uh, a lot of really exciting guests that that we have in store for you then. So um, other than that... I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Uh, A really happy holidays to all of you out there. Be safe. um, And especially with the virus still running rampant right now, um, you know, take that extra precaution uh, if you have to. And then hopefully, hopefully by about the time this comes out, hopefully we'll have more news on a a viable vaccine. So, so uh, hang in there, everybody. Uh, We love you all. Have a great holiday season. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our last episode of 2020. But until then, I give you without further ado, Richard freaking back. All right. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, I should say. Uh, uh, Richard, thank you so much for spending some time in your evening here and, and being a part of the show. Uh, glad to be back with you. So last time we had you on, I, I love the fact that you always seem to pick really interesting topics. So last time, obviously, we had you on um, about your, your previous book, Reviving Old Scratch. This time, uh, as we were just talking about before we started recording, um, got, got a copy of the new book in the mail, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash, and immediately uh, piqued my interest. Uh, huge music fan, uh, you know, love all the old rockabilly stuff. So what what an interesting topic, but what, what led you to writing about, you know, writing this book about, about Johnny Cash and how it relates to the gospel? Yeah, well, I think we, we talked a little bit about this the last time we visited about my earlier book, Reviving Old Scratch, is that I lead a Bible study on Monday nights uh, at a maximum security prison north of my hometown here in Abilene, and um, didn't know much about Johnny Cash. Uh, I mean, knew a little bit about him, probably like some of your listeners, and I bought at a record store a discount copy of Live at Folsom Prison, which is kind of his iconic 1968 uh, live prison concert at Folsom Prison that kind of like pushed his career into kind of superstardom. And so I just bought it, just thought it would be a fun thing to listen to driving back and forth from the prison every, every Monday night. And what I, what I found on the album uh, in the reception that you hear on the album from the inmates as they cheer and welcome him uh, in the concert was uh, just re- very reflective of what I was experiencing out at my own Bible study out of prison in the gratitude and in the welcome that I receive in the hands of uh, these incarcerated men. And so I just saw a lot of connection between that album my experience working in a prison, and I just saw a lot of gospel in that because it's not just about Johnny Cash going to a prison. It's not just about me going to a prison trying to bring good news. Rather, it's finding God and grace uh, in these unlikely places and unlike these people. And so um, 
after you know a couple months listening to that album, I bought At San Quentin, and that just started a long, deep dive into the music and life of Johnny Cash. Oh, that's so interesting. I I love the book. I love your book because you did a, a wonderful job of of research, and and I learned some things that I I was not even aware of. Uh, about the life of Johnny Cash. Um, like I said, uh, you know, huge rockabilly fan, and uh, I, I used to dig into uh, you know the old Sun Records stuff. You know, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, of course Elvis, uh, and all those guys. Um, when you were researching this, it, it seems like a lot of those guys have a very similar background, meaning they they grew up in poor families. Um, you mentioned in the book, Johnny Cash grows up in Arkansas. Um, his parents are are poor cotton farmers, and and so there's there's a certain lesson he learns, you know, growing up through the hardships of, of being a farmer, uh, during that period of time. And then, um, he witnesses, uh, this horrific accident, uh, that you talk about in the book that really kind of informs, uh, not only, uh, who he becomes as a person, but a a lot of his songwriting later on. I wondered if you could talk about that a little. Yeah. And some some people have seen who have seen the movie. I walked the line with y'all come Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon might know a little bit about this history, but, yeah, when he was 13 years old, uh, his older brother, Jack, who was 15 at the time, uh, died in a horrific saw accident. The morning of his death, uh, Johnny uh, was trying to get Jack to go fishing with him. But Jack decided to uh, go to the school and cut some fence posts to make some money for the family at the school shop. And while he was doing that, he gets tugged into the saw and it kind of cuts into his abdomen. And he lingered for a few days and then died very painfully. And it was just traumatizing for the entire family. It traumatized Johnny Cash because Jack was his best friend, but he also kind of harbored a lot of guilt and responsibility because he felt if somehow he had gotten Jack to go fishing with him that morning, he might have lived. But then on top of that, his his father kind of blamed him for Jack's death. Um, It's it's kind of an unreasonable thing, but, but he kind of blamed uh, Johnny Cash for the death. And so he not only felt his own guilt, he had to carry the blame of his father. And that scarred him, I think, in a lot of different ways. Um, but the other legacy of Jack's death was that Jack was going to be a preacher and he was studying to go into the ministry. And so dealing with his grief and trying to honor the memory of his dead brother, he was trying to figure out a way to honor his legacy. And he eventually makes this promise to Jack that he would spread Jack's gospel, spread the gospel message through singing gospel music his whole life. And he kept his promise. Uh, when he actually went to Sun Records in Memphis, he, he came advertising himself as a gospel music singer. That's not what he recorded at Sun Studios, but it's kind of how he initially saw himself and and saw himself all the way to the end. If you go all the way to the end of his life with the Reuben years, you know, he's he, he ends his career with that great song uh, when the man comes around anyway he sang gospel music his whole life in memory of his dead brother yeah that's what i i thought that was such an incredible part of the story about how he uh very cleverly tried to sneak in gospel songs um i i read there at one point he uh uh he he uh goes in and, and records a song uh and we'll talk about this a little bit later but um he, he records a song and and subtly tries to frame it as a uh, promise to his wife, which it probably kind of was, but it was also kind of a promise to God as well. And was able to kind of sneak a gospel song past Sam Phillips at Sun Records. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he, late in his life, Johnny Cash said that 
uh, I Walk the Line, which was written to kind of calm his wife's anxieties about his marital faithfulness, um, was, was actually a, uh, a, a song with two different meanings. And he was also pledging faithfulness to God in that song uh, as well. And so, yeah, he considered I Walk the Line to be his first gospel hit. He snuck it past Sam Phillips, who didn't want to record gospel music. He was wanting cast to record that rockabilly music that you were talking about. Um, gospel music wasn't selling, but Cash was so passionate about it, he kind of figured out a way to do it anyway. <laughs> and I think you mentioned this in the book, too, is he actually recorded it initially uh, as a slower, uh, more somber song, and then Sam Phillips kind of tricks him at the end and gets him to record one more take, uh, a little more up-tempo, and that's the version that they ended up releasing. Yeah, so Cash wanted to sing it like a slow ballad. He wanted to kind of make it a very romantic, slow ballad song for his wife, a love song. But Sam was kind of, again, pushing this rockabilly beat, and he, throughout the recording session of our walking line, kept trying to entice Cash to kind of push the tempo. Cash just refused. But at the very end, on the last take, he said, hey, just as, you know, just as a one-off, just let me hear it, you know, play it up tempo. And so Cash did. But he assumed after the recording session that Sam was going to release the slower ballad that they had been working on the entire time. But Sam didn't tell him and release the the up-tempo version. And, and Cash only found out about it when he heard it playing on the radio for the first time. <laughs> so he angrily confronts Sam Phillips about what happened. But I think the nerves, the, the anger calmed down quickly when he realized that it was kind of like uh, a huge hit. So I think they reconciled over that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can imagine. Um, I, I love, I love when you talk about the song though in the book, because, uh, you do this really great job of really kind of taking a look at, at how it represents kind of the life of Johnny Cash and, and how, um, this promise to walk the line was really kind of an impossible task and, and really kind of defines the human condition really where we're, we're all trying to walk the line in some sense, but ultimately it it's, you know, we have good days and bad days. And you talk about the fact that Johnny, by like 1967, I believe, um, he's addicted to pills. His life's falling apart. His first marriage falls apart. He's on the brink of suicide. And you have this great quote that I love in the book where you say, but if the gospel according to Johnny Cash is anything, it's not about our ability to walk the line. The gospel isn't about our faithfulness to God. It's about God's faithfulness to us. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Merle Haggard, friend of Cash, actually, you know, in the, the book, I quote him saying, you know, it was kind of ridiculous for Cash to sing How Walk the Line because he says Johnny Cash was out of, out of line his whole life. And so he pledges faithfulness to his first wife, Vivian, but he breaks his promises to her. They eventually divorce in 67, and he pledges faithfulness to God in the song. But like you, you just recounted, he descends into a season of, of, of addiction and unfaithfulness um, to God. And, and I think that's kind of where a lot of people identify with John Cash. They see him as kind of a broken man, as a man who kind of struggled. And his music reflects that. And his own spiritual biography reflects that. Um, but as I talk about in the book, in 67, he, when his marriage fell apart and his addiction was at its worst, he uh, got suicidal and he uh, drives to Nickajack Cave in Tennessee with a very strange suicide plan. He was just going to wander off into the cave networks until the batteries ran out in his flashlight and then just lay down there in the dark and 
gets so lost, he couldn't find his way back out again. So he lays down in the darkness, and then um, the audible voice of God comes to him, and it says, uh, God says to Johnny Cash, I, I am still here. And he realizes in that moment, although he had been unfaithful to Vivian, and he had been unfaithful to his friends and his family and God, God had never left him or abandoned him. And so um, I talk about how in the book, that's the message of grace, right? We can't keep our promises. And if our relationship with God is dependent upon our ability to keep our promises, then we're going to be in trouble. But it's God's fidelity to us, his faithfulness to us, his covenantal loyalty to us. That is that is our hope. And that's what we call grace. Oh, that's great. It's funny that that section of the book reminded me of two of the quotes that are actually on the, the official Johnny Cash website. Um, and, and both of them are quotes by, by Johnny Cash himself. One says, all your life you will be faced with a choice. You can choose love or hate. I choose love. And then the, the very next quote says, sometimes I am two people. Johnny is the nice one. Cash causes all the trouble. They fight. <laughs> I'm like, what, yeah. what, what better two quotes to perfectly show the internal struggle you know, throughout his entire life, right? No, and that's, I think that's some of the fascination with him, right? He's the man in black, but he's also this kind of uh, preacher, you know, an evangelist of good news. He's this outlaw, but he's also a saint. He's professing his love for God, but he's also singing murder ballads. He's, he's light and dark, all mixed in together, not just in his own heart, but in his music. And I think that is attractive to a lot of people because that seems more true than normally what you get. You often will get in the music industry, right, the bad boy image, the gangster image, where it's just all uh, darkness. And then you turn to the Christian music industry and it's all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. And Cash was able to sing both types of music in a very complicated and sometimes surprising mixture. And that's what I experience in my own heart contradictions and paradoxes, good and bad. And it's what I experienced out at the prison on Monday nights where I'm amongst the incarcerated. And yet um, there's some beautiful things um, that I see out there. And, um, and so I think that's where Cash's music is a great place to meditate on gospel themes of saint and sinner and sin and grace. Yeah, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thing that you you just commented on um, th- this idea that he he almost had more freedom uh, to be able to be a little more raw and a more more authentic and more honest uh, by virtue of the fact that he wasn't pigeonholed to one genre or, or one uh, style of writing or another. He could kind of flip back and forth between the two. He could write a, a rockabilly album and then put out a gospel album. Versus if, if he had been considered a Christian artist, you know, if he had tried to put out a rockabilly album, I would, I would uh, assume that he would have gotten a, a little pushback on that. Yeah. And I, I think country music has, is generous that way. I think I can, country music is able and has always expressed kind of the dark side, right? The, the, the drunkenness, the rowdiness, the the murder, the uh, domestic violence. I mean, country music can go to some dark places. And yet country music is also very rooted in gospel music as well. And so I do think there's a a rich textures and contrast in country music because of that. It's closeness to the raw human predicament, but it always has a foot in the gospel tradition as well. 
And um, I think that gives it a lot of interesting um, interpretive possibilities for an art form. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that a little bit more. Talk about his his writing tendencies because he was very different than, and you point this out in the book, very different than his contemporaries. So at the time, Elvis is putting out, you know, these kind of I think what they refer to as like teeny bopper, like love ballads and stuff like that. Where, meanwhile, Johnny Cash is writing some very dark uh, stuff, and he tended to gravitate, it seems, towards the darker, grittier material. Yeah, like um, in the book, I talk about early on one of his first songs that he, he uh, played for Sam Phillips, and they eventually released his Folsom Prison Blues. And there's a line in there, a very famous line, where it says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And at the time, they didn't know if you could say something like that on the radio. <laughs> yeah. And so, so Cash was able to kind of go to some very dark, even sociopathic places in his music very early, which kind of set him apart from those early rock and roll artists like Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, um, Elvis Presley. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with because of the darkness that in his life. Like, I think he, he struggled a lot uh, with his own inner demons, and he was able to identify with dark characters and dark material. Um, and because of that, I think it marked him as a very different artist, right? There was a kind of a, um, sinister aspect to his personality and even his stage presence with that kind of all black attire, um, that he wasn't just trying to entertain the young people. He was, he was doing something kind of different and he off and he kind of really identified a great deal with the folk tradition. Um, and the folk traditions, giving voice to some darker themes as well. Like um, one of the first songs that caught Rick Rubin's attention when he was working with Cash Late in his career was the murder ballad, Delia's Gone. And it's just a very dark song about a domestic homicide. But that was a song that had been kicking around the folk uh, tradition for generations. And so that's where Cash would mine a great deal of his materials is from folk music, um, and the themes that emerged out of that genre. <laughs> That's the, what, what's so interesting to me is, is um, I love where in the book you kind of tie uh, his, you know, we've, we've mentioned the term murder ballad, his murder ballads to this idea that human beings are, are more than capable of creating enough of their own hell without needing any help or needing a, a devil to provide that. Um, or as I've said before, you know, yeah, I've seen the devil and he looks a lot like me. Um, talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, well, I mean, um, there's, I think anybody who's honest and self-reflective can detect a a dark streak um, or a shadow side in their personality that um, that is always threatening. And a lot of us can feel that um, there's just a thin line between the life I currently have and some mistakes I could make that would put my life on a very different path. And I think Cash felt that about himself too, that kind of vulnerability to the dark side of his personality. Um, and if you want to call that the devil um, or just your inner demons, however you want to think about it, I think a lot of us kind of feel, feel that moral pull um, in our lives and we, you know, we spend our lives trying to keep the, you know, the demons at bay in that sense. Now, Cash did. He was a believer in the devil. Um, in fact, there's a famous scene I talk about in the book where on national television, he kind of talks about 
the devil um, as a as a foe and as an enemy and as an adversary in his life, and how he um, was going to spend his t- career kind of pushing back against the devil. And I think that was largely due to his struggles with addiction. Um, as I talk about in reviving old scratch, when you live and spend time like I have with people in recovery. You know, there's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare, a lot of talk about the darkness. And we can debate the metaphysics of all that, but I think anybody who can understand inner demons and a struggle against the dark side of the personality is going to be people in recovery, um, people dealing with addiction. And that was definitely Cash's story. He kind of constantly described his addiction as a form of, like, demon possession. Oh, man, that, that's interesting. Yeah, it kind of seems like, you know, regardless of where you stand on, you know, whether there's an actual, you know, being an actual devil – it seems like there's there's plenty there's plenty of of um, negative ripple effects c- caused by human choices. Um, enough of those to go around, you know, uh, as it is, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I think anybody who, who's self aware um, knows that, that we, we spend a lot of our lives um, trying to be a decent human being, and it's not always easy. We're constantly tempted to become selfish or give in to prejudices, and uh, we're we're not the people we want to be. You know, we we kind of have a, a a shimmer of guilt around our lives, right? There's a person I could be. I could be a better father, a better spouse, a better friend, a better neighbor, and and, and so we recognize the gap between our moral aspirations and, and the person I am today, and and. And so I think we all kind of feel like we're in a struggle there. And, you know, and, and in the Christian tradition, that's kind of been described as um, a, a battle against the devil. Um, but you can be an atheist and identify with the psychology being described in all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great, great segue. You keep you keep uh, teeing me up here. This is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, because uh, my very next question was actually uh, um, I found this part very very interesting. And, and again, this is another one of those instances where I wasn't aware of of this history of Johnny Cash, and I thought this was absolutely fascinating and, and something I think people should know. But in the book, you talk about uh, Johnny Cash's struggle with addiction, uh, as we were just talking about. Um, and how his, his career kind of takes a downswing. And when he really starts to kind of revive his career is when he pitches this, this crazy idea of this Folsom prison concert. And um, he starts his comeback and starts getting his life together. Around this time, I think he marries June Carter. And he records this prison concert that eventually his label re- reluctantly agrees to let him do, which ends up winning him two Grammy Awards. Um, but what was I thought that was the, the the most interesting part of this though is that he had been doing free prison concerts for like a decade prior to this. So so talk about yeah. how like because that backstory is really interesting and and uh, and talk talk about he got how he got started doing that and what his interest was in in doing these free shows for for prisons. Yeah, well, I think um, obviously his early hit um, Folsom Prison Blues. 
which we mentioned has a sociopathic reference to shooting a man in Reno just to watch him die. But if you listen to the song, it's really a song about loss and alienation and loneliness. It's a blues song. And the, the guy sitting in prison is listening to a train pass by and he imagines all the happy people on the train and he's stuck in prison. So there's this contrast between kind of happy people off to happy places with the incarcerated singer um, and the regrets and the loss that he's experienced. And so the ache of the song appealed to prison audiences. So they began writing him and he eventually accepts an invitation to play a, a live concert in Huntsville, Texas here. Um, and, uh, anyway, a storm thunderstorm broke out during the concert and all the electricity goes out. So there's no amplification. So the prisoners defy orders and move up to the foot of the stage so they can do uh, a Johnny Cash unplugged concert, basically. And, and just the ache and the, need, the, the, the desire for those prisoners to be close to him and how happy they were just to have him there, like how much he honored them to come, touched him profoundly. And so he kind of became addicted to doing these concerts because of the reception he received, unlike any reception he had received from any other audience. And so that was like in the late 50s. And so for like, you know, the next decade, he, he did over 30 concerts for no compensation in prisons, you know, often in air-conditioned rooms on makeshift stages. And every time he went, it kind of pricked his heart and his conscience and eventually became a national voice for prison reform uh, in America. He even testified before the U.S. Senate um, asking for more humane treatment of the incarcerated in the United States. Yeah, and, what, and I, the thing I thought was really interesting, too, is he, there was this quote, and I can't remember it exactly, but somebody, somebody asked him about uh, just the concept of doing prison concerts and, and what about the victims and that sort of thing, and he has this really great response and I, I think he said it was something along the lines of, you know, if 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 we have uh, more humane treatment and and we work towards reforming these prisoners, then hopefully there there will be fewer victims when they get back out into society. Yeah, and here's the thing: is I work in prison, and I can I can tell you for a fact that the, the men in prison are themselves victims. Like, if you ask me to tell uh, you their story, you know, they, they were, were themselves physically or sexually abused, um, coming from broken homes, you know, the, the, the idea that somehow has this beautiful life and then they go out there and commit a crime. I'm sure there are like sociopathic people like that, but that's not, no, that's not the norm. The norm is that victims produce victims and they produce more victims and we just pass our pain down generationally. And so, um, this idea of just seeing the incarcerated as evil. Again, there are evil people out there, but the men I work with um, have horrific stories of their upbringing and, and they almost didn't have a chance. Um, and so a lot of us that pride ourselves on being good, upstanding citizens, you know, at the end of the day, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, if we had been abused or beaten or born into, you know, chronic poverty and, and familial chaos. Like who knows how we would have ended up. Like our virtue is really the product of fortune. You know, we're very, we're very lucky 
um, often. And, and the trouble is we often take moral credit for things that we didn't even have any responsibility for. Oh, that's so true. Adam, Adam and I have talked about before on the podcast about winning the birth lottery, you know, like, yeah, I just got, I just so happened to be born a straight white male in 21st century America to two loving parents, you know, in a middle-class household. It's like, how did I, how did I get so lucky? You know? Yeah. And, and, and then we take credit for that. Like we're, we're good people, but largely our, our, like I said, our virtues, the product of circumstance. That's not to say that we don't exercise our choices and that people in bad circumstances don't have free will. I mean, I'm not trying to wade into those waters. I'm just saying it's a lot more complicated. And this is kind of what we're talking about. It's a lot more complicated than separating the good people from the bad people. That line runs through every human heart. So, so talk about, so you, so to keep on the same topic here, the same theme, um, you dedicate a chapter in the book to, uh, this man named Glenn Shirley, who was a, a prisoner at Folsom and he, he writes a song called Greystone Chapel. Um, and, and you talk about, uh, at times the cost of solidarity and you bring up the theme of solidarity a lot, which I thought was really interesting. So talk about that and then kind of talk about a little bit about when solid solidarity doesn't always necessarily have a positive outcome and yet, you know, the, the need for solidarity, the need to make the attempt. Yeah. So Glenn Shirley was an inmate at Folsom prison and he had uh, written a song called Greystone Chapel, which got its way to cash. And so cash wanting to again, express solidarity with the Folsom uh, inmates, uh, sang the song at the conclusion of the uh, Folsom prison concert. And so it's this iconic moment where cash, the very end sings a song about faith, uh, from a song using the words of one of the very own, right? One of Folsom's very own. Um, and, and he honors them by letting their words end the concerts. It's just great story of solidarity, um, identification with and standing with, uh, the marginalized. Well, after the concert, uh, Cash and Shirley met. Cash took an interest in him and pledged to himself that he would try to help Glenn Shirley get out of prison early, try to get him early parole. And he was successful, pulled a few political strings with his celebrity status and got Glenn Shirley out. And he even gave Shirley a job. Um, he joined the cash, uh, concert tour as a performer, but Shirley was a pretty disturbed guy and eventually made some bizarre threatening remarks to the band members. And they said, you got to get rid of this guy. He's dangerous. And so cash reluctantly cuts him loose. So Shirley bounces around, gets back into drugs, is homeless, and eventually commits suicide. And when I read that, it, it struck me because we like to see the iconic moment of Johnny Cash shaking Glenn Shirley's hand from the stage at Folsom. Like there it is, Johnny Cash shaking the hand of a guy in jail, and that is that's what the gospel is all about. But if you know the whole story of Glenn Shirley, you know that that story doesn't end well. There's a lot of grief and sadness. And it just caused me to reflect in the book and in my own life that I wonder sometimes if that's why we avoid solidarity, why we avoid messy, complicated relationships with people, because we want to protect, we want to protect ourselves from the cost, from the risk, from the vulnerability that a, a mutual give and take would entail 
And so I just took that Glenn Shirley story, just kind of say, you know, we, we sometimes in, in Christian uh, audiences and especially kind of liberal, progressive, social justice sectors of Christianity, this idea of solidarity and standing with the margins is like, you know, we just talk about it all the time. But then you look in the world and realize not a lot of people are actually doing it. Like we talk a good game and we express solidarity on social media. But when it comes to life and blood relationships, we're often missing in action. And I think we're missing in action because we're afraid of the cost, right? We're, we want to go to the prison, but we don't have, want to have a messy situation like a Glenn Shirley in our lives, um, who is scary and complicated and ultimately heartbreaking. But I think the love demands that. What I, what I say in the book is, if you love anybody well, you're going to open yourself up to that risk, and that's the choice. It comes. It's just a. It's just the price tag you pay. Anybody who's loved a child or a spouse or a friend or a family member or or somebody in their neighborhood that have tried to walk a pathless person, especially if they're a difficult person, knows that there is a cost to love, and a lot of us don't want to pay it. And so it's easy to just kind of stay in our homes and on the internet and love the world from a distance. Uh, it's a lot safer that way. So anyway, I use the whole story of Johnny Cash and Glenn Shirley to kind of meditate on the cost of love. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, what I, what I think is also interesting, too, about this story is that it, you know, even though um, in, ultimately, you know, the Glenn Shirley situation or example uh, doesn't have a, a beautiful ending, you know, that I'm sure... Johnny wished it would have, you know, so he can say, look, here's this man who was fully reformed and now he's a good uh, steward of society and that sort of thing. Um, It would have been very easy for him to wash his hands of this man. And yet at the very, very end, uh, after Shirley dies, Johnny Cash pays for his funeral. Yeah. And and that's, that kind of is, goes back to that theme of faithfulness and fidelity, you know, um, that whenever we stay faithful to each other and just walk the journey, even if it's hard and even if it doesn't get it to the happy ending, but that, that imagery of sticking with each other is, is, is what God does for us, right? God's loyalty to us that, that no matter how messed up we get, God's always going to be there. So, um, yeah, I think cash is, commitment to stick with Glenn Shirley through his whole life was a great example of how we can be sacraments, representations of God's faithfulness. Yeah. It's such a, such a beautiful story. Even, even though it has a tragic ending, it was kind of like, you know, this beautiful example of how, you know, at our worst, God still stands by us, you know, and, and uh, I thought that was just such a cool story. Um, So talk about Johnny Cash's second attempt at a recorded, prison concert where he almost starts a riot. 
because uh, you yeah. make, you make this really interesting connection to solidarity there, along with lament, which is a, a really great topic we just addressed on the podcast. So I'd love for you to tell that story and kind of connect that. Yeah, this might be my favorite Johnny Cash moment. So after At Folsom Prison was recorded and it got so much publicity and success, they quickly did another album called Live at San Quentin. And so, again, wanting to kind of express solidarity and give voice to the prison experience, he steps up to the microphone and he goes, you know, guys, I don't really know how you, how you feel about San Quentin, but if I was in your shoes, this is how I would feel about San Quentin. <laughs> and he rips into this song he wrote, and, and the, the opening line is, San Quentin, um, I hate every inch of you. Uh, another line is St. Quentin, may you rot and burn in hell. And it's just, just line after line of just stinging rebuke and, and venom poured out on the San Quentin prison. And, and, and by proxy, right, the entire, uh, prison system, it's inhumanity, it's brutality, it's ineffectiveness. And Cash is so successful in kind of capturing the feelings of the men, how they felt about San Quentin, that after the song ends, they just erupt. And I would encourage your listeners, just just go to that song and listen to it played and listen to the response. And it just it goes on and on. And then they demand that he sing it again. And so he does. He sings it twice. And then the response at the end of the second playing is even longer. And the story goes that the room got kind of dangerous. Like it, it felt like the room, the response of the prisoners was pushed the room to the edge where it was almost on the edge of a riot. And Cash told his producer afterwards, he said, you know, if I had said, let's go, totally the room would have rioted. So it was right on the edge. And um, so that's my favorite Johnny Cash moment at the time. He almost started a prison riot in San Quentin. <laughs> um, but I use but I use that story to illustrate the reason why the room got so energized like that is because how successful he was in putting himself in their shoes. They they had felt seen, and so I talk about how that song San Quentin isn't really a gospel song in the sense that it's not a very happy song. It's just a, you know it sounds like the prophets, kind of a stinging rebuke. But 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 that sometimes how. Um, grace sounds like grace sometimes sounds like an indictment um, because it is speaking a word for the oppressed over against those who are oppressing. And that means that sometimes gospel songs might have an angry edge to them and also might be expressing a lot of lament and grief um, and sorrow. Yeah, it really is a modern lament. You know, it's a, I, I listened to it, you know, I listened to uh, uh, the entire album a few times through, and it really is just kind of this cry out, like, God, where are you? Which I, I could, could imagine from the perspective of prisoners who are in this prison 
that at the time wasn't really well known for having great living conditions and, you know, um, and, and that sort of thing. So it, it really is, it comes across like a, a modern lament. Yeah. Like, again, I would tell your listeners, if you don't know anything about John Cash, listen to San Quentin played back to back and listen to the response of the prisoners and, and the sound of their response will tell you everything you need to know about the kind of artist Johnny Cash was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, uh, it's a great record. Um, he, he kind of liked to push it too a little bit. Cause I remember, uh, the first time I listened to the Folsom prison record, I remember at one point he says, uh, you know, this is being recorded. He starts laughing in the middle of a song and he's like, you know, I can't say hell and I can't say shit. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He gets a rise out of the prisoners and he's like knowing full well that this is recorded and they're going to have to take it out. You know? So yeah. Pretty funny. And that, but that's the paradox. That's the paradox of the guy, right? He's yeah. up there sing. He's up there cursing and then he's going to sing a gospel song at the end of the concert. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. He, he, he creates these really weird, um, whiplash effects with his music, which I just find fascinating. Yeah, it's just odd dichotomy. <laughs> it's a yeah. Um, so uh, the other thing that uh, that I didn't know about Johnny Cash, um, and again, this kind of goes back to his his uh, just desire or or, or his almost uh, talent or ability to stand with the people who are marginalized, the stand with the people on the margins. Not only did he did he stand up for prison reform when probably not a lot of people were, but he also advocated uh, throughout his career um, for the uh, Native Americans and the, the treatment of Native Americans throughout the the history of the United States. And he began writing songs on this topic back in the fifties, like Old Apache Squaw. And then he writes this concept album in the sixties called Bitter Tears that his record label and radio stations were not real happy with. And, but it was important to him and he obviously pushed hard enough to get this album released. And I think I read somewhere that he, he said that nobody else was speaking up about it. And so, you know, he was going to kind of take that mantle, but um, I'd love for you to talk about that. And then I thought what I thought was really funny is the story where uh, his reaction to when radio stations refused to play it, uh, and, yeah. and his way to try to get them to play it. I thought that was really funny, but talk about that in general and just kind of his, his stand. Yeah. So, um, you know, we know his kind of activism for prisoners, um, but a lot of people don't know, uh, his concern and his activism on behalf of native American peoples. And he was one of the first artists in, in, the music industry to kind of throw his reputation and his career, his celebrity status behind kind of Native American concerns. So he recorded a concept album called Bitter Tears, which is basically a, a collection of Native American protest songs. Um, and a lot of the songs are extraordinarily harsh and critical of America, the American nation and American history and the American government, and the way we would break our promises to indigenous, indigenous peoples over and over again. Um, so when the, so when the album was released, um, again, this isn't rockabilly music that teenagers are going to listen to, right? Who wants to listen to an entire album that just calls out and indicts, you know, the American nation and its treatment of native Americans. And so a lot of record companies just didn't play it. A lot of radio stations didn't give it any airtime and he got really frustrated with that. So he takes out a, a full-page ad in Billboard magazine. And the opening line of the ad is, DJs and radio managers, where are your guts? 
<laughs> and so he calls out the entire industry as kind of gutless. And as the story goes, he burned a lot of bridges. Uh, a lot of people didn't like being kind of called out like that. And we still don't like being called out. Who likes being called out, right? Um, and so he spent a lot of his social capital to get airplay for that, for that album. But I also think that is a great illustration of what solidarity involves, right? It's not, it might involve you taking unpopular stands and it might involve you kind of, um, getting dinged a little bit. Um, and, uh, bitter tears is a great example of that. Yeah. And I, I love where you call this, uh, in the book, you call bitter tears, uh, liberation theology, according to Johnny Cash. Yeah. Liberation theology, I'm sure your listeners know, is, is the idea that kind of God has a preferential option for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And so basically that's what Bitter Tears does. It kind of sings American history from the vantage point of the Native Americans. And when you, when you look at American history through their eyes, it's a very different history. And, but that's the same way it works for the gospel, that if you ask the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, what is good news for you? What does salvation and emancipation look like for you? Um, that's a very different gospel than if you ask the powerful and the rich, what is good news for them? So I talk about in the book that there are a lot of different gospels out in the world and you have to pay real close attention about whose gospel you're going to listen to. You're going to listen to the gospel as it sounds on the margins of society, like out where I am on a prison, or you're going to listen to the gospel as it comes from the rich and the powerful. Um, who is the gospel going to benefit? That's kind of the, the question of liberation theology. So, so talk a little bit about, uh, so there's, there's kind of a third group uh, of, of people that he uses his celebrity to kind of uh, provide a voice for. And that is, um, he, he wrote a lot of war songs. And in particular, he kind mm-hmm. of wrote about Vietnam War and soldiers and, and kind of the horrific conditions that they were uh, experiencing and dealing with. So talk about how he was a, a voice for those people. Yeah, so one of the things I want to do in the book is not just kind of praise Johnny Cash as kind of a moral hero, because there's some parts of his music that might trouble some people, especially people kind of on the political left. And some of that is his nationalistic music. He sang a lot about America, but he also sang, like you've mentioned, a lot about war and valorizing a variety of American battles. And one of the things I talk about is that I is that when you look at his war music, that his war music is at its gospel best, and I think also at his artistic best, when he isn't just praising uh, um, you know a military victory, but is rather articulating the the trauma and the pain and the loss um, of war. So I think some of his best war songs. Are, are intimate songs about the effect of war on the soldier and the traumas and the pains that they, and the scars that they carry um, in their lives. Yeah. And, and so you, you mentioned this and I, I love, I think this is the, a good place to, to go. Um, his patriotic songs, he had a lot of those as well, which on the surface seems kind of contradictory compared to all of 
the uh, the material we just talked about. So talk about that and kind of how he also had a lot of these very patriotic songs as well. Yeah, that there's a tension there, um, and I wanted to explore that a little bit. And um, what I what I, the argument I make is he was very proud of his country. He he served in the Air Force. He was a very proud American uh, patriot. But his patriotism and his love of his, con- of his country would be uh, woefully vulnerable to uh, misappropriation if albums like Bitter Tears and At Folsom Prison didn't exist. That albums that kind of express a critical voice about America. And it's that capacity for criticism where I locate his patriotism. So here was a, here was an artist that was able to love America and praise America, but he was also able to say very harsh and critical things about the country he loved. And I think that's a form of patriotism that we have lost um, in 2020, where today it seems that if you voice criticism of your country, you'd be taken as unpatriotic. So I, I kind of try to protect his patriotism and his nationalism by drawing attention to the entire body of his work, how he was able to and had the capacity to be critical of his country. And, and Walter Brueggemann calls that the prophetic imagination, the, the imagination to imagine that the status quo um, or your nation could stand under the judgment of God, that God could be unhappy with us. Um, and I think Cash demonstrated that throughout his whole uh, his whole career. And I think that's what keeps his love of country uh, on safer ground than if he lacks that critical edge, which I think a lot of Christians on the right of America today are lacking that critical capacity. Yeah, it, it seems almost as if we've lost the ability to say, you know, hey, it's okay to to have pride in your nation, but then to also say, but we can be better. We can do better. Yeah. It seems like you're torn between those two options, right? So it's like, you get, you know, criticism involves kind of hatred of America on one side versus you just baptize everything that America does, um, on, and, you know, wave the flag and, and praise Jesus. And, and I think Johnny Cash is an interesting location to think about that, the, 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 the middle ground there, um, where, being grateful for a country that has given you a great deal uh, can also be combined with somebody who could sing about how, like, this country has treated Native Americans and incarcerated horribly and in very dehumanizing ways. That's a part of America's story as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk about – so I thought this was an interesting backstory too. Johnny Cash's nickname, as you mentioned um, throughout the podcast, is The Man in Black, and it's based on his choice in wardrobe. Uh, and this goes all the way back to his very first performance in a church. So talk about how, uh, talk about that and how you relate this to the idea of solidarity and a view of the cross. Cause I thought that was really neat. Yeah. So I think most of your listeners have probably heard John Cash described as the man in black. Um, and that goes back to his very first concert. They were going to play at a church and he, Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant were going to go to the church and play, and they, they didn't know what to wear. And the only shirt that they all had the same color of was black. So they wore black to their very first concert. And Cash made a joke that night that, well, I, black is better for church. 
And that kind of started uh, a, a preference of his own to just wear black attire, which again was a different choice because if you look at a lot of the early country acts, they were all very uh, fringy. You know what I'm saying? They're wearing those buckskin coats and fringes and and sparkly rhinestones and boots and caskets up there wearing, you know, black. So he had a very different look as well. And that was really just a a preference. Like it didn't have any particular meaning. Eventually though, people kind of associate with like an outlaw image. And when I ask people, what do you think of when you think of the man in black? They usually think, well, it's an outlaw image. Yeah. But in 1971, uh, Cash was on the campus of Vanderbilt University and this was a time of race riots and concerns about economic inequality and the Vietnam war was raging. So a lot of social chaos going on, not unlike our, our, our world today. And they, these college students kept pushing cash saying, where do you stand on this? Mr. Cash, where, where, where do you see yourself on all of these social issues? Where do you stand? And in response, and as an answer to those college students, he wrote a song called The Man in Black, where he reinterprets his clothing as uh, a sign of solidarity. So he says right out in the song, he says, you know, I wear the black uh, for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. And he goes on and talks about how he wears the black for the elderly and for the drug addicts and for the soldiers who die in war. And he just goes all the way through the song, identifying with all these different kinds of suffering people. And he says, basically my black clothing is a sign of grief. It is funeral clothing. It is expressing sorrow for the pain of these people. And so for me, even though it's not my favorite song musically, um, I think The Man in Black is probably my favorite song in his theologically because it is just an overt expression of him uh, identifying with the suffering and the pain of people who the American dream had left behind. Mm, that's that's such, such a um, polar opposite of, of uh, so many of uh, the, the rock stars throughout history, you know, uh, yeah, just such an interesting uh, take and, and such an interesting use of his platform and his fame, too. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's an interesting thing to, to talk about because, you know, Christianity and art are hard to, to blend together, right? It's hard to be prophetic with your art, right? Because you need to be somewhat commercial um, to sell records. But you also want your art to speak the truth. And I, I think he, you know, he, he struggled with that his whole life. I think our artists today struggle with that. How political should they get? Um, but it's definitely interesting to watch him get political with his music at a variety of locations in his career. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, too, because, you know, you see you see a lot of the artists who do speak up and, and the back, the backlash they get is, uh, you know, stay out of stay out of politics, you know, stick to music. And then on the on the flip side, the ones that don't are are accused of of not using their their platform uh, for good. You know, it's it's kind of damned if you do, yeah. damned if you don't. Yeah, and I think Cash is interesting in that regard because I know I, I spoke to a lot of older audiences, boomer audiences, and they just love Johnny Cash, right? He's their guy, and but his his willingness to get political on the man in black song and bitter tears and live at Folsom prison 
uh, his advocacy before the Senate for prison reform. I, I think he can become a place where we can put up somebody there that they admire and kind of go, you know what, if Johnny Cash can get political, it's okay to get political, you know? Um, so I, I think he might be the kind of artist and patriot that we need right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so talk about towards the end of his career and um, I'll never forget when this song came out. Cause I was just kind of blown away just at the song choice in general, but uh, later in his career, he does uh, multiple albums with the famous producer Rick Rubin, who a lot of people know. He's produced everybody from Weezer to uh, the Beastie Boys and Metallica and everybody in between. But he does a cover song, uh, the song called Hurt, which is actually written by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. And the song was obviously about Trent Reznor's own uh, demons that he he battled his life, but it really ended up becoming the song that really was about Johnny Cash and, and kind of a reflection on his, his life and career. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So Cash's career in the eighties was kind of on the downswing and he eventually got cut by his label. And so his career was basically over, but Rick Rubin, you know, producer of you know metal bands and rap and hip hop, you know, was looking for a challenge. And so he reached out to this aged country icon and wanted to see if they could do some music together. And, they, the two of them produced, um, at least during Cash's out, lifetime, four albums, the American recording albums that a lot of people consider to be the very best music they recorded in his life. And one of the things that Ruben did, like to point out, a bit of his genius was he would take these songs from a younger generation, like Rusty Cage or, you know, Hurt, and he would get Cash to sing it. And there is this contrast between these youthful lyrics, but sung with the perspective and the voice uh, of an aged person. And when you kind of add Cash's age to Trent Reznor's lyrics, it, was, it, it became something quite miraculous because certain textures in the song were able to emerge. And, and a lot of it is how sad the song is. And, um, and it became, you know, perhaps the great song of his life. I mean, right now, I was looking, researched this for the book that Rolling Stone considers her, Cash's cover of her, to be like a second greatest cover in rock and roll history. I mean, it, it's just timeless what he did with that with that song. And and then there's the video. A lot of people will speak of the video and just say the video is just one of the greatest music videos ever recorded. And it, and it evokes a lot of the same retrospective themes of life because you see pictures of the dilapidated museum that fall, had fallen into ruin that Cash had run called the House of Cash. And 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 you you just get this sense of Ecclesiastes, right? Life is this pursuit of fame and fortune is just vanity of vanities. Um but yeah, I think that was uh, Ruben's genius is the way he would get Cash to sing these younger songs and Hurt was probably the quintessential example of that. Yeah, un- unbelievable. I-, I remember when that song came out, and just I think everybody uh, was just kind of stunned by just how um, how he just kind of adopted it, and made it his own, and and uh, I mean, I-, I prefer that one to the the original version personally. I mean, it's just it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Um, so so one last question for you before we let you go. Um, 
what uh, what was your kind of lasting takeaway from you obviously did meticulous research um, and, and made a lot of really interesting parallels and connections. So what was your kind of lasting takeaway from from doing all this research and, and writing this book? Um, I think it's this idea that grace comes to us um, in unlikely people and places, kind of what I said at the very front end. Um, because the way I tell it is, you know, when Cash gets on the stage at Folsom Prison, we look back and go like, hey, that was the pinnacle of his career, the high point. But if you know his story, that concert was, well, he was at a bit of a crossroads at that point in his life. Musically, he was struggling and the, the uh, record company was thinking about letting him go. He had divorced Vivian, so his marriage and family had fallen apart. And he had recently tried to get sober, but that was still shaky. In fact, he popped a couple of pills before he got on the stage at Folsom Prison. So, like, everything about his life is very fragile. But what makes the album so iconic, what made it so successful, wasn't cash. It was the audience. I mean, that's why it's a live concert, right? It was the sounds of the room and the enthusiasm and the cheering of the prisoners that makes the album unforgettable. And so as I argue in the book, you know, those inmates saved Johnny Cash's career and probably his life in how they received him. And that is what drew me into his story because that's what I experienced on Monday nights out of the prison is that you would think that I'm the person going out there to share the Bible. But more often than not, those are the guys out of the prison that saved me. And so to me, that's the big takeaway, right? Grace is going to come to you in unlikely places if you cross those social boundaries to meet the Jesus who's on the other side of the railroad tracks. Beautiful. <laughs> what, a, what a great place to end. And uh, before I let you go, though, uh, where can people uh, keep, keep track of what you're up to and, and follow you? And, uh, and where can people pick up this, uh, this, this new book? Well, it's, the book is online at Amazon or IndieBound or Barnes & Noble. Um, so any, any of your online affiliates, it's, it's in, should be in local bookstores as well. So they can pretty much get it anywhere. So it's Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash, which, which is an album title that comes from my son. We were, we were, I was listening to a lot of Johnny Cash in the car during this year or two of writing this book. And so my son has to listen to it on the drive back to, you know, and forth from school every day. And so one day Aiden looked at me and he said, Hey dad, you know what? I've been listening to all this Johnny Cash music. And it seems like Johnny Cash sings about three things, trains, Jesus and murder. <laughs> and I said, that would be a great title for a book. <laughs> and it, and it became the title for the book. Yeah. Is, is, um, is he getting any royalties based off of this now since he did? Yeah. Provide it? He probably should. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he, I think he takes great pride that he titled his dad's book. That's um, fantastic. I think he's very proud yeah. of that, yeah. And uh, anyway, but I also am a blogger, and so people can find me writing every week uh, on my blog, Experimental Theology. So that's the other place you can find me. And my speaking schedule's on there, too, and so I might be in a town near you. Um, so, yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, thoroughly enjoyed this again. Like I said, it's, you know, it's a book that really contains all three of my favorite things. So it's got theology in it. It's got history in it and it's got music. And, and so I can't recommend it enough. Um, you know, if you like any of those three things, uh, you'll love this book. So go out and get it. 
Uh, but can't thank you enough. Um, loved having you on the first time. So happy we could have you back. Um, thanks again for, for taking some time out tonight. Always lovely. Thanks for letting me talk about the book. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.